Check out award-winning Johnson & Boone Solicitor's unique product, Legal Guard. Ideal for businesses and individuals, Legal Guard ensures you get the legal help you need when you need it. Packages start from just £24 a month and include free expert advice, access to a library of legal documents, as well as exclusive discounts on a range of services. For more information, visit johnsonandboone.co.uk forward slash legal guard and quote the code FITCHESH. You're listening to Johnson & Boone Solicitors podcast exclusively on the pod station. Welcome everyone to episode 26 of the Johnson & Boone podcast. My name's Mark. This week I am joined once again uh, by Jonathan Field. How are we doing, Jonathan? I'm good, thanks, Mark. Yourself, mate? I'm splendid. It's good to see your smiling face again. Always. If this is the first episode you've ever listened to, then just a quick run down of what it is that we do and why. Um, each week uh, we cover a topic that Johnson & Boone specialise in. Uh, and help give some or provide some tips, some advice, some guidance if you find yourself with a legal problem. Hopefully that advice might help you do a few things or alter your strategy to possibly avoid having an issue. And then ultimately, if that all else fails and you do need some expert advice, then hopefully this show will give you a good idea of when's best to get in there to get the advice that you need. Uh, so that you're not spending a fortune having to fix a problem, or rather you're not being charged a fortune for having to fix a problem that perhaps could have been avoided if you'd uh, got some help a little bit sooner. Uh, so that's kind of the gist of it. You can uh, actually subscribe to this show um, in a whole host of ways. So if you go to the website, johnsonandboon.co.uk, there's a podcast tab. You'll actually find there all the previous episodes um, on those episode pages, you'll actually find shortcuts to all of the major podcast platforms where you can get the show. If you subscribe, uh, then every time the latest episode drops, it downloads onto your device, which makes it super easy to listen to the show. Alternatively, you can download the Johnson & Boom mobile app, which is free on Apple and Android app stores. And that's got a podcast tab as well, which allows for easy listening, so to speak. There's also a whole host of other benefits you can get off the app. You can book appointments, see what services are available, access your wonderful Legal Guard membership. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, a, a wrath, a plethora, so to speak, of things. Um, and, indeed, if you go on there and check those previous episodes, you'll find one which is somewhat relevant to the topic that we're covering today. Isn't that true, sir? Yeah, I think we discussed it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in relation to sort of disclosure and inspection and uh, all the ramifications and the pitfalls that you can get on that. Yeah, episode 24 to be precise. And I think we'll find I got super excited, uh, got extremely excited about uh, disclosure, which I wasn't necessarily expecting to do, but uh, did. So I'm wondering whether I'm going to get equally uh, excited about this one. So what specifically are we doing today about disclosure? 
Right. So last time, I think we went over the um, the basics of disclosure and inspection. So the difference being disclosure is where the other side tell you what documents they've got and evidence they have. And then inspection being when you've asked to see those documents. So today we're going to have a look at what you can do if the other side, for whatever reason, decide not to give you those documents or don't put that document on their list, but you're reasonably sure it exists. Yeah, on that previous episode, we went through quite a lot of the tactics that are used when it comes to disclosure and, of course, forcing people to provide stuff that you either know that they have or that they said they've had but just haven't provided you. And I guess this this very much this very much encompasses this topic. So I guess starting with the disclosure, what what are your options if they, say, have produced this document on a list? and haven't sent it over to you when you've you've either asked for it or when they're supposed to have provided it? Well, the options at that point are you can sort of reasonably ask for it. So if you know it exists, it's on their list, or you think it exists but it's not on their list, I think the first protocol usually is, is to ask them for it. Um, amicable request, usually do it in writing or over the phone. And obviously, if you've asked them for it and they're still refusing to give it to you or making excuses as to why they can't or why it doesn't exist, at that point, then obviously we can go back to the court and say, hey, they're not playing fair. Can we have a, an application order, please, that they do disclose exactly what we've asked for? And we know that document exists, but they're not providing it to us. So you, you're essentially asking the court for help, really. Um, yeah. We try and give people guidance on how they can try and do these things or attempt to do these things themselves to a degree. So if you're going to go about to do this, make an application, uh, where do you start? Well, the provisions apply from the civil procedure rules, specifically 23 and 31. Um, so they give sort of what guidance they can in relation to what applications you can make. Um Basic application is always on an application notice form. Um, you can get those online quite easily. Um, with the application, you can make uh, a witness statement setting out what you've done, uh, what you've asked for, why you think you should have it, um, why the other side haven't given it to you, and you know why you think um, they either have it or are refusing to give it to you. Um, typically, then, with the application, you'll have to pay a fee. Um, and then on the back of that, the court will list it for a hearing. Now, sometimes the court will just decide on the papers. So it means that it won't have a hearing in person. But I'd say probably nine times out of ten, the court are going to want to see or speak to the parties um, to have a chat and see what's what and then make a decision from there. How much is the fee? Uh, it's a 100 quid. It's £100 if it's a without notice application, so that means you don't uh, attend at the hearing. And if it's an on-notice application, it's £255. Now, those are the fees that are levelled by the court. And then obviously if you have any solicitors involved, unfortunately, we would obviously charge a bit more for the work that we do at that point as well. So the £255 fees, if there needs to be a, a hearing, uh, you mentioned that was in face-to-face -face as well, but... Uh, these are the kind of hearings that can be done using telephones as well. They have sort of conferences. 
Uh, especially given the, the recent times, it's more than likely to be a telephone hearing. Um, so, yeah, in these uncertain times, um, it's more than likely to be a telephone hearing. The court are also now utilising various other medias. So you could use Zoom or Skype or Microsoft Teams, and then the court can bring all the parties together, listen to the evidence and make a decision on that on that basis. So you can't do it in your uh, pyjamas anymore because they've got the video calls or at least the top half of you has to be dressed appropriately that's the one you can be sat there in the boxing. <laughs> um we obviously when i initially asked the question and said look can people do this themselves or how do people go about doing this if they want to do it themselves uh, we always do caveat that kind of suggestion with the fact that you guys spend all day every day doing these things and there is a reason why you as a profession exist um so uh, what are the pitfalls if people do want to try and do it themselves and and what is it that they are likely to get wrong that might ultimately impact upon the chances of success these sort of applications are easy to get wrong that's one thing i do want to stress there mark um in terms of a litigant in person doing it themselves Sometimes they can get blinded by emotion, um, so to speak. They might feel that they have a reasonable excuse for making an application. Um, but unfortunately, in law, sometimes a reasonable excuse to make that application doesn't necessarily sound out. Yeah, There are occasions where a litigant in person would make an application believing that they're absolutely right to do so. But the court can actually say, well, it was completely unreasonable to make that application purely on the basis that there's no merit to it. And sometimes we do see as well where litigants in person have made the application, they've either made it too early, at which point the courts say, well, there's no point in making that application yet and dismiss it, or they make it too late. The court will criticise them for making a late application, especially if it's going to jeopardise the court timetable, so any other directions or a hearing date. And as always, if you do lose these applications or if you are criticised for your conduct, there's usually a, a financial penalty. That's it, yeah. The court, if they're unhappy with the way you've done something or why you've done something, they can order you to pay any costs that the other side have incurred in defending that application. And sometimes they can also order the costs of an incidental to the application is any other work that they've been put to outside of the application itself so it could get expensive uh, yeah. when is the best time to make these applications then normally these sort of applications follow post litigation so in a ordinary course of a, a litigated claim you will have filed your list of documents you will have asked for inspection and at that point, usually within a few weeks of having asked for inspection, you'll know whether you're going to get those documents or evidence that you need. If at that point they are posturing to say, well, we haven't got it, or they're making excuses as to why they're not going to disclose it, I would usually say within within two to three weeks of asking for a document, if you haven't got it, um, at that point in making your application then. So for for the benefit of people who perhaps aren't as familiar with the court process, sort of starting at the very beginning, you've you've tried to negotiate it without needing the court's assistance, you've had no success. So you've started a claim, you've you've set out what your 
your criteria are for why why judgment should be made in your favour. They've filed a defence saying why you're wrong. Uh, you've both filled in a, a questionnaire for the court to explain where everybody currently stands. The court has set out a, a timetable based upon the information that's being provided in that questionnaire to determine how long uh, it's going to take between that point and when it will go to a final hearing with a, a list of things you've got to do in the middle. And one of those things you have to do in the middle is obviously send a list of all the documents that you're going to you're going to rely upon and and that's the point that we're talking about at the moment yeah so at that point as you say if you've not got what you need at that point and the other side aren't playing ball you've asked nicely that's usually the time you begin to make your application at that point and what sort of things did the court look at when they're thinking about who to find in favor of for this sort of a an application sort of many points there's no sort of fixed guidance on this and the rules don't give the court any specific ways they have to think about it really it will be usually case specific and sometimes judge specific as well certain judges do deal with things in, in certain ways um, whereas other judges may give you a bit more leeway some judges are quite rigid as well generally the court's looking at the conduct and what it is you've made the application for so they will be looking at what sort of reasonable attempts you've made to get the documents and the evidence before making the application. Obviously, when you've made your application, you've put your witness statement in, you've said what you've done, you've exhibited any evidence you've got to show what you've done, and the court can base a, a, an accurate reading on that evidence as well. Usually, your burden's on the applicant to show why the other party not complied with the order, and that them not complying is unreasonable. Again, any evidence that you've got to assist your application would be in your witness statement. And again, if you can file a really good locked-on witness statement, it gives the court a lot of information that they can make an assessment on before you've even stood up and made any representations on the day. Um, if you can make your witness statement that good, usually you can turn your case on that alone. They can get very complicated, can't they, these applications um, about what's reasonable, what documents should exist, whether they're documents that you should have to disclose. There's an awful lot to it that the court might raise as a concern and you might not have even considered it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, this is, again, sorry, one of the pitfalls where a litigant in person would, would struggle. Some documents are covered by privilege, so that means that they're not a disclosable document. So whilst they may have it, um, it's covered by legal professional privilege or litigation privilege, which means that whilst they have it, you are not, as the opposing party, entitled to see it. Um, so I've seen applicants in person make an application for such documents, and obviously the court said no. Um, any correspondence passing between the defendant and their client as well is also privileged, and you're not entitled to see that. Other documentation without prejudice communication. So I think we've previously discussed this in previous episodes. So without prejudice communication is where a solicitor can write to a defendant, mark it without prejudice and try and have uh, a chat, a settlement negotiation that can't then be produced to the trial judge until after the um, judge has made their ruling. Again, that is a disclosable document but you can't have inspection of it because, again, it's without prejudice 
and the court aren't allowed to see that until the conclusion of the case. Um, on the back of that, then, the court will look at what you're actually asking for. So is that document useful to me? Is it useful to the case? Is it detrimental to me? Is it detrimental to the other party? If the court considers that the inspection of that document is vital to the case, then obviously you should succeed in your application. Um, but equally, the court could say that, well, we don't actually need that document. We can still proceed without it. And then obviously you'd lose your application on that basis if the court find it that way. Yeah, courts are very conscious, aren't they, about people going on fishing expeditions or asking for things just to be a nuisance when in actual fact they could probably prove the same point through another method or another form of document which they might actually have easily yeah. available. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes you're looking for things that you think might be out there but don't necessarily know if the court finds you going after something that possibly exists, maybe exists, but neither of you particularly know whether it's there or not, uh, they're not very happy with you. Um, they will come down on you like a proverbial ton of bricks, unfortunately, on that occasion. <laughs> um, uh, what about if uh, you you are successful, you manage to persuade the court that what you have asked for is reasonable, that it, it possibly does exist, or... If it doesn't exist, the other side need to confirm that they've checked properly and that it doesn't exist. If they don't comply with what they've been told to do, what happens next? Well, at that point then, you've had your application hearing. The judge has ordered the defendant to go and look for it. And if they have it, um, disclose it and make it available for inspection they then have to go away and do what they've been ordered to do. So if they don't do that, so either they make no reasonable effort to try and locate the document or they actually have it and just won't give it to you, court has a, a range of powers that it can do from there. So the most draconian of which is strike out the defendant's case, in which case if they strike out the case, judgment entered for the your party, your client, and then the court will then just assess your case. So the defence has been struck out. The defendant can't defend the case again after that time um, without making a relief from sanctions application, which would be uh, heavily contested, I imagine, if it came back to us that way. Um, and your case would then proceed to a final hearing. The court would assess your claim, award your damages, and the defendant would have to cough up, essentially. I always quite liked the applications for them to come and answer questions. There was a couple where um, I was up against uh, Liverpool City Council and getting the chief executive of Liverpool City Council to have to come to court to answer questions about something they had absolutely no idea about. Usually soon focused the mind, I found, and uh, amazingly documents that should have been provided uh, were provided uh, with, yes. with, with little further delay, shall we say. Yes, that's usually a good tactic as well. Um, we've had some success in doing that, um, especially with accountants for some reason. They don't like coming to court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no comment. Let's not go down that route. What might cause your application to fail? We've mentioned a couple already. We've mentioned about phishing or looking for documents that just don't exist or aren't relevant. But, but what other factors might people trip up on? 
Um, I think I mentioned before, obviously, the timing of your application is usually pretty crucial. So if you've delayed in making your application, the court will want to know why you haven't made your application sooner. Um, they generally want these sort of things to be on the ball because the court do not want the court timetable to be affected at all. Um, they really don't want to. Once they've set dates in place for certain things, it's nigh on impossible these days to move those dates unless there's a very good reason. So if you've known for, say, six, seven, eight weeks that you haven't had the document you've requested, but you've delayed in making the application, obviously, unless there's a good reason you've delayed that long, the court are probably unlikely to give you your application, given that you've waited that long. And if you've waited that long, usually you're up against the trial date. Um, and if then you're asking for a delay in the trial date on the back of that, Again, the court just don't like it. They don't want to shift things around once they've been set in place. If the court then hear your application, but find that it's too onerous for the defendant to comply with that. So if it puts the defendant too much work, then the court might consider that it's just not cost effective or time effective even in relation to the specific issue that you're trying to get to. So if you're after a document, but the defendants, let's just say it's in an office in Singapore and they can't get to that office in Singapore, um, the court aren't going to ask them to get on a plane to go to Singapore, get that document, come back to Liverpool and hand that document to us. Um, obviously, yeah, you'd expect it to be able to be faxed and emailed. It's a bizarre example, I grant you, but that's the sort of thing that the court would be looking for. I think for the purposes of examples, it, it, it suffices. I, I think it's hard to explain to people who've never had to deal with these things just quite how wide-reaching disclosure can be and what kind of things you're talking about. Because you're not necessarily just talking about documents. I mean, you could be talking about um, certainly like personal injury cases. Uh, you had things like the shoes that people were wearing, so you wanted to, that the shoe was disclosure. Uh, and it was a case of going to inspect the shoes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, crazy things like that um, do exist. So it, it it's not beyond the realms of possibility that onerous is is something as simple as that. That's it. CCTV footage as well is another good example there, where you can't really expect someone to sit and troll through four weeks' worth of CCTV footage. Um, if it's just looking for like a 30 second window that possibly exists that we don't know whether the camera caught it or not either. Um, so things like that sometimes get taken into consideration as well. Um, what sort of costs are usually incurred by people when they fail an application? So uh, how expensive does it get if you misjudge this badly? Generally, if you've got it wrong and the court award costs against you, it just depends on, on what sort of situation the defendant's in. If it's a defendant in person, then you may not have to pay out too much. You'd have to pay any reasonable expense that they've been put to in defending the application, so any fees that they've incurred. If you're coming up against a barrister and a firm of solicitors that have defended the application on behalf of their client, and you could be looking at anywhere between fifteen hundred and two thousand pounds sometimes. Um, perhaps more if they've had to put a lot of work into search, um, prepare their own response statement, instruct counsel to attend at the hearing, 
any skeleton arguments that may be necessary. There are just various factors, but usually I'd say you're probably going to figure around at least £1,500 on that sort of thing. It all depends, doesn't it, really? I've I've done um, disclosure hearings where it's been sort of 15, 20 minutes, and I've done them where they've been four hours long. Yeah. Uh, and obviously there's a big difference there in time and therefore a huge difference in how much the bill comes yeah. to when you've finished. Yeah. Um, is there any other disclosure things we want to cover there? There's just one sort of final thing to sort of ask to let people know and to think about really is that sometimes you can work your way around not having to make the specific disclosure application. So in an example where you reasonably think the defendant has a document and you know that they know that you have it and you know that they know what's in there, you can ask a Part 18 question for better and further information. So instead of making a specific disclosure application and running the risk of potentially failing, you can ask them a specific question which they are required to answer. So a Part 18 question is again Part 18 of the CPR. Once you've asked it, the defendant has 14 days to answer it. And if they don't, you can then issue an application on the back of that to force them to answer it um, if the court ordered that to be the case. So sometimes that's just another way of getting round it without necessarily the risks of a full and formal application there. And sometimes it's worth not asking at all. Sometimes yeah. the inference that you can point to when they turn up at trial to uh, set out a certain position without a document that you think is quite important and because it's not being disclosed and it's not in their list and because you haven't sort of prompted them to the or alerted them to the fact that it might be an important part of their case, you can then point and say, well, it, that doesn't exist, so I must be right, which is always... It, it boils down to the tactics that we went through in quite a lot of detail when in the previous episode. Yes, yeah, it's always a good, good step when you can do that, especially after trial where they're trying to put a point across and you can sit there and go, well, where is it? <laughs> We've mentioned where in court process that this happens, but there's actually a sort of a a similar type of application. And again, we've mentioned it on previous episodes, which is essentially the same as a specific disclosure application, but is at a different point, uh, which is obviously very confusing for anyone who's trying to listen to this, but um, it's the pre-action disclosure application, isn't it? Which is essentially you asking for documents you think should exist and uh, should be provided, but at the very beginning of the case. That's it. Sometimes your client comes to you with a case and they don't have necessarily all of the information that they need in order to make their case, essentially. You can ask the other side for those documents and... At that point, because it's pre-litigation, they're not necessarily required to give them to you. They should, because the parties are required to make all reasonable attempts to settle pre-litigation, but there's no specific thing that you can do at that stage other than the pre-action disclosure application to force them to give it to you. So if you know that something exists that you need to make your case, you can make an application to the court to compel the other side to give that document to you, and then off the back of that, once you've got it, you can then go away and try and settle your case. But if that's not possible at that point, you've then got the evidence that you need to make your case and you can issue court proceedings. 
I mean, these are very common applications, the pre-action ones, because there is quite a strong emphasis, both in terms of the rules and very much with the approach of the courts, that any documents in your, your list of documents when you've started court proceedings should kind of already been disclosed before you've even got to that stage because the idea is that everyone puts the cards on the table to try and sort it out reasonably to begin with and only when that fails do you start the court process and actually your yeah. disclosure part during the court process is merely revisiting what should have already been done at the beginning although you and I both know it's amazing how many uh, slight variations there are between those two stages. It's uh, it's interesting to see what comes out in the wash, especially sometimes when the defendants have put their their case forward pre-litigation, and then you get to the point of post-litigation where there's a lot more riding on it, and suddenly things start coming out that weren't necessarily uh, volunteered, shall we put it, beforehand. Yeah, but again, this is why they have the likes of you guys to provide representation, because there are things you can do to either defend or protect yourselves if that happens or to react in a way that might give you some protection because that document you just mentioned there might be the difference between you winning and losing, mightn't it? Yeah, that's it. Sometimes they're key um, and that's where your pre-action disclosure comes in. You get what you need and hopefully at that point you can settle the client's case. And the pre-action disclosure is very much identical to the the application and the process that we've just described before. It's just at a different stage. Yeah, that's it. It's it's nigh on identical, to be fair. There's nothing that you do different from a pre-action disclosure to a post-action disclosure. Um, it's just a slight different tweak in process, but nothing major. Fantastic. Well, um, I think we've done disclosure there. I think everyone, if they've listened to these two episodes, should now be a disclosure expert, um, or at least fully understand what a headache it can be and why they would need uh, Johnson & Boone's assistance. So if anyone does have a question, uh, Jonathan, how would they get in touch with us? Yeah, they can give us a bell on the office number, 0151 637 2034, or they can email into us at info at or via the website. Uh, we've also got Facebook accounts, Twitter, and... LinkedIn. And LinkedIn, and... Uh, any of those methods and we'll get back in touch with you as soon as we can brilliant uh as i mentioned before try and subscribe to the show because it does mean that you uh, will get an alert just to let you know that it's dropped and you can listen to it instantly uh to resolve all of your disclosure headaches uh jonathan pleasure as always thank you very much for joining us do we know what topic we're going to be doing next week i think we're doing a landlord and tenant update next week with regards to the latest changes uh, it's all been uh, turned upside down again by the <laughs> coronavirus, unfortunately. And uh, I think it'll be me bringing back the update on that. Yeah, to, to date stamp this, it's the 1st of October 2020. Having been through lockdown and measures having been eased, uh, we've just gone back into what is essentially a very similar lockdown to the first one because of a winter uh, peak again. So one assumes there's an awful lot of changes to adapt to those new headaches, those new problems, those new challenges that they were trying to to deal with with the first raft of changes. Yeah, it's all been, uh, as I say, turned upside down is probably the best way to do it. It's a fluid situation. We found a, 
situation last week where we'd filled in the form on the Friday and it had changed on the Monday. <laughs> so you definitely, if, if you have anything to do with landlord and tenant matters, so if you're a landlord or if you rent a property, it is highly recommended that you tune in for that show so you can uh, make sure that you know what the latest latest news is and what your rights and what actions are available if there are any problems uh jonathan thank you very much for joining us my friend cheers mark all the best mate take care bye now get social at johnson and boone on instagram facebook and twitter